Well, this is my first opportunity to say Happy New Year, y'all. It's 2015, whether you want it to be or not. <clears throat> Some of you longing for the good old days of 2014. That's a good thing. Hey, listen, let me encourage you. Um, Scott made an announcement about the uh, Rock Hill One um, revival services. We have the smallest sanctuary of all of the churches. And you'll remember last year, we pulled in every chair possible. If the fire chief showed up, we would have been in big trouble. We're already having conversations about bringing pews out and putting them all along here and packing it out. Uh, it is important for us to make sure that we do a good job with child care. So if the corporate worship experience really isn't your thing, and I hope that it is, but if it's not, if kind of serving and, and knowing that you're doing good by allowing perhaps parents of preschoolers to be in here unhindered, um, please, we're, we're asking for two hours if you're not in our normal kind of uh, preschool rotation, and you will enable other people to be involved in worship. Because the truth is, <clears throat> when you put that many people in a room, and there's, there's not a lot of elbow room, there's bound to be conflict. It may have happened at your Christmas table, may have happened at your New Year's celebration. When you have a lot of people together, conflict happens. I always know when um, there has been conflict when I come home from work, because I'm told about what my child did. I go, last time I checked, they were your child too. Um, but if they do anything bad, it's, it's dad's fault. If, if they're smart or intelligent or well-behaved, then that's mom's fault. And so, <clears throat> yeah, I heard that, getting an amen. <clears throat> Guys, listen, it's the cross that we bear. It's the cross that we bear. Um, listen, the truth is, anytime you talk about people, there's the opportunity to talk about conflict. And we are going back into Matthew. We'll be in Matthew chapter 12 this morning. And we're going to see something that is a... Uh, significant turning point in Jesus's ministry because uh, when we were in Matthew a couple weeks ago right around Thanksgiving we saw that there were some grumblings that were starting to take place in Jesus's ministry John the Baptist who is the herald the forerunner of the Lord ends up in prison not the kind of place that a prophesied prophet expects to end up he thinks he's going to bring in the kingdom Jesus is going to come and he's going to be victorious and he's in jail and so John sends kind of an emissary, a delegation of his disciples to Jesus say, Hey, are you the one? Because I'm kind of wondering right now. And he says, Go and report to him what you've seen. And <clears throat> chapter 11 concludes with Jesus talking about the people's reaction. And he says that they're very fickle like children. They complain about John the Baptist being too hard and too rough. And he's, he's just a hard man. He lives out in the desert and he, he eats bugs and he wears camel hair. But then Jesus comes and he has a reputation for partying with eating with tax collectors and sinners. And then they complain about Jesus. And he's like, you know, if we're hard, we get criticized. If we're soft, we get criticized. So there's the rumblings of controversy that are taking place. When we get to chapter 12, this is a major turning point. Because Jesus is categorically rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. As a matter of fact, by verse 14 of today we'll see that Jesus does something so bad and so egregious that the religious leaders begin right now in chapter 12. There's 28 chapters in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 12, verse 14, they want to kill him. The wheels are set in motion for the crucifixion, the murder of Jesus. And so we see a, a big change. <clears throat> because chapter 11 concludes with Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is gentle and my load is light. We see the compassionate Jesus. And when we move to chapter 12, we see the controversial Jesus. Because each of these next uh, three weeks, we will see a major controversy that Jesus is em embroiled in. And what 
happens as Jesus deals with conflict. And listen, <clears throat> going into a new year, don't you, don't you want to handle conflict differently than you did in 2014? You ever said anything in the moment, in the heat of battle? That even like immediately, you're like, ooh, shouldn't have said that. One of the things that I think is awesome is not just kind of understanding the chronology of Jesus' life. Okay, in chapter 12, verse 14, they want to kill him, but they don't actually do it to like chapter 24. You know, more than just understanding the chronology of how things happen, to see the character of our Lord in the midst of controversy. Because, um, heads up, Jesus is pretty ticked off today. Chapter 12, he starts to get into a battle with the religious leaders. And he's angry at how they have twisted God's word to make God's word a burden instead of a joy to people. And so to see <clears throat> Jesus' indignation but his righteousness and, and, and all through this, man, it's a great example to me to make sure that I fight based upon principle instead of based upon passion. Because if you're like me, it's the passion and not the principle that sometimes comes through. So make no mistakes. Today, chapter 12... Beginning in verse 1, Jesus is at war. And he's not the one that declared the opening shot. It was the religious leaders of his day. So what in the world happened? Well, let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you don't have your own copy of the scriptures, in the pew in front of you, page 725, should be Matthew <coughs> chapter 12. And in verses 1 and 2, we see the incident and the accusation. God's word says this. At that time... Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees over his disciples working on the Sabbath. And it's important for us because we sometimes throw the Sunday school terminology, you know, there's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Who in the world are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a layman's religious group. And so we know that the word Pharisee is almost always a bad thing when it's used in the New Testament. So if I could take away the negative connotation and bring it into a modern-day equivalency without the bad stuff, uh, they were a layman's group, kind of like the Gideons. Now, no negative connotation with the Gideons, but they were a layman's group that had a religious concern. So they were a, a group of kind of normal, non-professional religious people, like the Shriners Club, the Kiwanis Club. They were just a layman's group of people that were very concerned about strict adherence to the Old Testament law. That sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, you've got, a, you've got a, like a, a, a grassroots organization of people that are concerned about biblical obedience. The problem is... They added all this other stuff to the law that wasn't there in the first place, and they actually believed that their obedience earned them favor with God. That's a lie from the pit of hell. H how good would you have to be to get on God's good side? Well, the first thing you have to do is underestimate your badness to an infinite degree, and, and that you actually believe that like, you can tip the scale with your... that you can, in your own power, tip the scale of your own goodness to outweigh your badness. I would just assert to you that the Bible's testimony about your badness is much worse than you think it is, even if you're a pessimist. The Bible says we're totally dead spiritually. We have to be resurrected by God's Spirit to believe. And so <clears throat> there you have this layman's group, and what do, they, what do they do? What do they accuse Jesus of doing? Well, basically, your first bullet point there says that Jesus' disciples disregard the Scriptures, and that even Jesus himself doesn't care to be bound to what is biblical. 
Did you see what your disciples are doing? They're not obeying the law. They're, <clears throat> they're working on the Sabbath. They're doing what is not lawful. And so they believe that Jesus and his disciples were very flagrant in their violation of the law. Now here's the thing that's interesting. What did they do that was so bad? They grabbed some wheat, crumbled it together, let the chaff fall, had their Wheaties. Just a little snack. They were not gathering. They were not threshing. They were not storing up. They were not working. They were doing essentially what you do when you go to the pantry and grab a granola bar. Grabbing a snack. Unwrap it and eat it. Grabbed a handful, unwrapped it, and ate it. And the Old Testament specifically made allowances for people to um, take care of their needs. Now, of course, work was prohibited on the Sabbath, but were they working? Or were they simply filling their stomachs, getting, getting a snack? And so Deuteronomy 23 says <clears throat> that there are allowances that are made for things like this. Because in those days, there's no restaurants. So how did you, how did you get food? You took it with you. So Jesus says, all right, disciples, we're going to go out. We're going to go on a trip. We're going to do a little road trip. We're going we're to um, stay in Sychar this night. We're going to go to Sidon the next night. Well, let's say along the way, Jesus decides to heal somebody. There's an opportunity for him to preach. And guess what? The itinerary is now blown. You're not going to make it to the end. You are now dependent upon either people's hospitality or grabbing some grains along the way. And so there's this whole um, accusation that Jesus' disciples don't care at all about what the scripture says. All you care about is your empty stomach and you're violating the word. Well, here's the problem. The whole way that the Pharisees approach the scriptures and the law and what you can do and what you can't do is messed up for three specific reasons. They added requirements to the law. I mean, obviously, they added things, and we'll get into some of that later on. It's crazy, some of the things that they said you cannot do on the Sabbath because they, they wanted to take the principle, and they were so concerned about safeguarding the principle that they encased it with thousands of other laws that if you broke that law, you were still keeping the Sabbath because you had to work away all these different layers of law that they had added. They added requirements. They disregarded exceptions, And they truly missed the heart of what the Old Testament law was about in the first place. And Jesus says as much in his scathing reply. He says, Pharisees, you add requirements, you disregard exceptions, and you miss the heart of the law. So Jesus begins to respond in verses 3 through 21. And it is a no-holds-barred response. Uh, The meek and mild Jesus that you like, that's not the one that you see here. Jesus says, okay, Pharisees, you want to debate the scriptures? I'm your huckleberry. He says, come on. You want to debate the scriptures with me? Seriously? Okay, like I authorize them. Um, I'll be glad to talk to you about whatever you want to talk about related to the scriptures. I will meet you on your own ground. And basically, Jesus will, in these verses, quote from the law, from the history, from the prophets. And like parrying someone's sword thrust, Jesus completely in three swoops destroys every argument that they've got and he turns the entire argument back on them. That's why they want to kill him. So how does he start? <clears throat> well, his first response is, he, he kind of starts kind of meek and mild. Uh, his first response is, uh, listen, you guys don't know the scriptures. How do you think that goes over for a group of laymen that like pride themselves on like teaching the Bible? You know, let me just make a suggestion. Next week when you go to Sunday school, if you kind of interrupt like five minutes and go, ah, you don't know what you're talking about, you're not going to be invited back to Sunday school next week. You know, it's not the way to win friends and influence people. So they come to Jesus and go, man, your disciples, they're doing all this. <clears throat> and Jesus says, um, 
let's just establish one thing here, kind of like as a first principle. You guys don't have a clue what you're talking about. You don't know the scriptures. Look at verse 3. He says to them, Haven't you read what David did? Now, where are they going to find out what David did? Jerusalem times? No, Old Testament. Verse 5. Haven't you read in the law? Verse 7. If you had only known what this verse meant, I desire mercy in that sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. Jesus said, you're accusing my disciples of breaking the law, and they're innocent, because you don't understand the scriptures. So, you know, that was kind of a really kind and nice way to start off. And basically, he says, by quoting Hosea 6, 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, he's going, listen, if you show up to the temple every Sunday and you bring your offering, and you bring your sacrifice, and you do all this, you go through all the mechanics, you wear your, you look nice, and you get here early, and you smile, and you shake hands, and you look like you're singing the songs, and then you go back your own way, and you live how you want, because the sacrifice doesn't count. There's just a formality. He was, I want people that understand that I want mercy. I want what they pretend to worship to actually filter out into how they live. He goes, I don't, I'm not looking for you to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. I'm looking for your heart that is really dedicated to to me. And so he says, I don't want obligatory obedience. I want people who really understand that it's not about this. It's about having a heart that loves God. So if that wasn't enough to set him over the edge, his second point is you don't understand the Sabbath. You just don't get it. Certainly the Sabbath is given for God's glory, but it's also given for man's welfare. God says we need day of rest. Anybody want to give that an amen? You know, is it good to have a day of rest? Good to have a day that you're, I mean, are you glad you're not working seven days a week? It's given for God's glory, but it's given for man's welfare. But the Pharisees had all kinds of ridiculous law that added to God's law. For example, you could not travel more than 3,000 feet on a Sabbath day. So how many of y'all live within walking distance of the church? How many of you traveled more than 3,000 feet this morning? Well, the good news for you this see, oh, read, stop. Um, you don't count. Um, so how, how many of you traveled more than 3,000 feet to church this morning? Here's the good news. We'll have an invitation in just a second. You can come forward and repent because you broke the law. You know, you traveled more than 3,000 feet. So that constitutes work. They had all kinds of laws. They, you, could not, um, you could not carry a load that weighed more than a dried fig. Now, I don't know how much a dried fig um, weighs, but we have any we have any people that love their big Bible? If you got a big Bible, hold it up. Come on, let's see the. That's not big. I'm talking like a. That's that's a little bit bigger. You know, if you've got if you're one of those big Bible, you know, study Bible, 15 pounds, get your Holy Spirit workout. You know, you. I'm sorry, your big Bible, you just broke the law. You're in trouble. Um, on the Sabbath, you could not take a bath. My kids go yes. Um, my boys, I, I just horrified my girls. My boys say yes. Um, why could you not take a bath? Because if whatever you were bathing in, you filled it up too much, and when you got in, the displacement of water caused it to overflow the tub, you have now wet the floor, and you are washing the floor, which constitutes his work. So no baths on the Sabbath. Dumb. <clears throat> I like this one. You were not allowed, you were not allowed to work in, look in a mirror on the Sabbath. You know why? You might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out, and that would be a violation. You would be working now. And so um, I shaved because I had a big grace back right there. So um, listen, you look in a mirror on the Sabbath, you're in trouble. And so they had turned from the Sabbath being 
a day that you should look forward to and a day of rejoicing. The Puritans used to call the Lord's Day the market day of the soul. It should be like a party and a marketplace and festivity and being with your family and a feast all wrapped up in one. It should be the market day of the soul. It's where your pantry gets restocked. And instead, they had taken the law and they had made this impossible burden that now Sunday, instead of being a day of rest, was the most worrisome day of the week. Did I break the law? Is it okay for me to wear the shirt? Oh, oh, wait, that's 2,999 steps. What do I do now? I can't get back home, you know? Um, my Torah scroll weighs too much. You know, it's more than a dried fig. And so he just says, guys, listen, you have messed up the Sabbath. And he says it in three ways. <clears throat> he illustrates it right in this passage. Look at verses 3 and 4. He begins by saying that the Sabbath was not purposed to restrict deeds of necessity. He says, have you not heard, verse 3, what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priests. This is a story from 2 Samuel chapter 21. David is on the run, is on the run for his life. Saul's trying to kill him. He's got a, a group of loyal men that are traveling with him. <clears throat> and when your life is threatened and you've got to get out of Dodge, you, um, you don't pack a bag lunch. And so they've been on the run. I, the, I can't tell you the distances. I can't tell you how long. But they are, they're starving. They have no food. And so they make it to the tabernacle, which is not in Jerusalem. It's in another place. It's in Nob. And they go to the priest there and they say, do you have anything for us to eat? He says, man, the only thing we got is the consecrated bread, the bread of presence. We bake the bread every Sabbath. We put it in there. And whenever, it's, whenever the week is up, we take the bread out and we eat it. I said, I'll give you that. And the Old Testament specifically said that the priests were the only ones who were to consume that bread. But here's the thing that's interesting. God, who is never bashful to call out people's sin, never condemns David and his men for eating that bread. Now, was it an Old Testament law that the priests should only eat it? Yes. But this was an act of necessity, and God never condemns David or his men for eating bread that they never should have eaten. So God was, obviously, okay in that situation with a violation of his law. So if God is okay with one of his laws, which is certainly not moral, it's ceremonial, if God's okay with one of his laws being broken because of necessity, don't you think he's okay with the disciples maybe breaking one of the Pharisees' man-made laws? God was, God was okay with it because there's no scriptural um, rebuke. And so he says, you know what? The Sabbath, when you use it to restrict deeds of necessity, that's a problem. He says it's not intended to disallow service to God. Look at verse 5. He continues on. He says, haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath day the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? What's his point? <clears throat> his point is... Um, Sunday may be a day of rest for you, but it's not for your staff. You've got deacons, you've got Sunday school teachers, you've got staff, you've got, you've got me, you've got the band. They're all working on Sunday. And you know what? No matter what your interpretation is on Sabbath or Lord's Day, nobody has a problem with us working. Right? I don't hear, I hear emotion at our church conference tonight that, you know, Sunday really truly needs to be a day of rest because then we wouldn't have a worship service, would we? And so what they're saying is there's clearly exceptions. There's a principle... But there are exceptions to the principle. And Pharisees, you don't get it. You don't get it. You're, you're willing to say it's better to starve. And you're willing to say, if you want to be consistent, then you have to say we can't worship God. Because if we're going to be consistent, then nobody needs to work. And he's saying the priests work on the Sabbath every day and they are 
innocent. It's not like the priests need to apologize for being priestly. Uh, hey, God, we're glad to kind of help God's people worship, but please forgive us. No, they don't need to. They're not guilty. They are innocent. And then he continues on in verses 9 through 14. He gives a living illustration. He says, not only do you not know the scriptures, not only uh, do you misunderstand the Sabbath, you forbid uh, deeds of necessity, you forbid uh, service to God. They use the Sabbath to restrict acts of mercy. Here's the illustration. Moving on from there, Jesus entered the synagogue, and there he saw a man who had a paralyzed hand. And in order to accuse him, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He answered their question with a question. What man among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. And there was great rejoicing. No. But the Pharisees went out from there and plotted against him how they might destroy him. See, here's the answer that the Pharisees wanted Jesus to give. Hey, listen, withered hand man. I got lots of compassion. I know that withered hand, you know, that, that uh, you've lived with that for a long time, that really stinks. And you know I have the ability to heal you right now. But unfortunately, it's the Sabbath. So why don't you come back to my house, we'll have dinner, and as soon as the sun sets and it's okay for me to heal you, I'll do it. But I'm not going to do it right now. You know, there are people even here in this room that would applaud Jesus' shrewd diplomacy for upholding the Sabbath, but also showing compassion. And Jesus was frustrated because the Pharisees said, all right, Jesus, is it biblical to heal on the Sabbath or not? And Jesus goes, seriously, you're going to use the scripture for even a 24-hour lack of sensitivity to human need? You've got to be kidding me. And so Jesus was not willing to allow wrangling over the Sabbath to even allow a 24-hour reprieve to doing an act of mercy. He said, do it. And he said, listen, this is going to get me in trouble, but uh, I'm not going to do what you want me to do. Stretch out your hand. And listen, Jesus is already in hot water because he's telling them, like, you don't know the scripture. You get, like, worship wrong. You don't understand the Sabbath. And he's, like, authoritatively telling them how to interpret the scriptures. And now he is demonstrating that his authority is true because he just healed a man with a paralyzed hand. I think I would be like, uh, you know, uh, I respectfully change my opinion. I'm, I agree with you now, Jesus. And what happens? They go, you know what? This jerk thinks he can tell us how to interpret the scriptures. He thinks he can tell us what we do in worship. He thinks it's okay to violate the Sabbath. He's exalting himself over the scripture, over the temple, and over the Sabbath. He must die. It's amazing. Jesus comes and he does deeds of mercy. And he doesn't do it at the right, he doesn't do it on the clock at the right time. And the result of his benevolence is that they want to kill him. Third and finally, <clears throat> Jesus says, listen, it's not just that you don't understand the scriptures, it's not just that you misunderstand the Sabbath, but you don't recognize the Savior. You don't get it. And that's the main point of all of this, is what, is the, what are the scriptures to point us to? We don't worship the scriptures, okay? We, we believe 
that God has so superintended the overkeeping of the scriptures that while this is not the original manuscript, it is a faithful translation of that, and we believe we have the word of God in this book that we hold in our hands without error. That doesn't mean that there's difficult things to deal with. We believe that this book contains truth without any mixture of error. The scriptures are supposed to point us to Christ. Why do we gather for worship? So we can check it off of our list for the week? So, you know, we can make grandma happy? So we can make mom and dad happy? So we can, you know, further our business contacts? No. We come to worship because it's supposed to point us to Christ. And Jesus is saying, you don't, the scriptures are not understanding, the scripture are not understanding, the Sabbath, those are the least of your problems. Because they testify of me. That your biggest problem is you don't understand who I am. And that's his main point. Look at what he says in verse 6. We skipped over this earlier, but it's appropriate here. He's getting into this whole conversation about, haven't you read how the priests work on the Sabbath? But I tell you that there's something greater than the temple here. Verse 8, he says, for the Son of Man isn't just over the the, um, temple, but he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's exalting himself above the temple. He's exalting himself above the Sabbath. And he knows that when he heals this man, he has crossed a line that is going to get him into deep trouble. I wonder. <clears throat> Sometimes this is a wonder that gets you in trouble. If your convictions, if crossing the line to be true to your convictions was going to get you in trouble for Jesus, would you do it? Because the vast majority of Christians in America are not. Sometimes it's convenient to follow Jesus. Man, Jesus is great. Jesus is present, you know? What would you do if your convictions for following Christ caused you to cross the line you could never come back from that? Jesus sets an example for us here. You've got to do what's right. You've got to follow what God wants you to do, and he does it. So it says he understands that there's consequences to his action. And in verse 15, it says when Jesus became aware of this, he withdrew from there. And huge crowds followed him, and he healed them all. But he warned them not to make him known so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Is Jesus retreating? No. There comes a point where it says he will resolutely set his face to Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to happen when, it come, when he gets to Jerusalem. Verse 14. Their plot is going to find its fulfillment. He's going to get the axe. He's going to die. And he goes to Jerusalem knowing that this is going to happen. His withdrawal here is not to escape, but to avoid a premature escalation of conflict because it's not time. He hasn't taught everything that he's needed to teach. He's not formed his disciples as full as he's needed to form them. And here's the thing. Jesus is right. He has just won the argument. He said, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know the Sabbath. You don't know the Savior. And he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, it's not like he made a big hit in the game and stands over the guy and says, who's your daddy? You know, he didn't, he didn't go, you know, let me show you who's boss. He doesn't flaunt his rightness. He understands he's ticked off the religious establishment and he very kind of meekly and mildly just steps away take care of some other business but he knows that the big showdown is going to come awesome to see his modesty jesus could call them fire consumed all the pharisees and then everybody would have rejoiced wow man awesome look at that he fried them that's not what he does that's not what he does and so he is not afraid to stand up and speak out but he doesn't loiter around looking for trouble he says you know you don't understand the scriptures you don't understand the Sabbath. you know the saviors and then he walks away he's good with that and then he goes into what is the longest Old Testament quote in the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is written for the Jews. There's tons of Old Testament quotes in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the longest extended quote from Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. And you see uh, <clears throat> four beautiful things about this. 
Because the religious leaders, have, they, have, they have played their card. We don't like you. As a matter of fact, we're plotting now to kill you. Their hands played. The, the card's on the table. We get to see a completely different perspective of Jesus from the Old Testament in uh, these passages, verses uh, 18 through 21. While the Pharisees rejected him, look at the beginning of verse 18. What's the father say? Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul delights. The Pharisees rejected him, but the father recognizes him and commends him. He says, you're my son, and you're obeying me, and I delight in you. Does that sound familiar? At Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' transfiguration. Father shows up at both times to offer his commendation. This is my son. Listen to him. Pharisees are not concerned to listen to him. But God says, this is my son who comes gladly as my servant. And I am, uh, because of his willingness to suffer for my glory, I lift him up and I commend him. What's it say about the spirit? The last part of verse 18 says this. I will put my spirit on him. The spirit recognizes him. It rests upon him and it commissions him. The Father commends him. The Spirit commissions him. Because guys, listen, any great thing that we're going to do for God, do we need the Spirit to be able to do that? Can we have an organizational meeting this afternoon and do something great for God apart from His Spirit? Absolutely not. We could have a great organizational meeting. You know, we could plan something spectacular. But if God's Spirit isn't in it, it's dead. It's a dead religious work. And so, why in the world, if Jesus is God, does he need the Spirit? Well, Jesus is not a man like us. He's God, but he's man. God, the, the divine nature of God doesn't need any lifting up, any encouraging. But the human side of him, the man side of him, needs strengthened by the Spirit. God could go through whatever he needs to go through. But the man part, the, 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 the earthy part of his incarnation, needs the Spirit's strength to fully obey the path that he's to walk. Because the path ends with a crucifixion, with a cross. That's more than any man can endure. For his part, the son recognizes his compassionate role. Look at the end of verse 18 through verse 20. It says, uh, the father commends him, the spirit commissions him, and it says, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue, he will not shout, no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. See, the son recognizes his role. The father's commendation and the spirit's commission is for him to proclaim modestly. Now, modestly doesn't mean he doesn't believe the truth that he's proclaiming. It just says he's not going to thump. He's not going to get overexerted. He's not, he's not going to yell. He's not a used car salesman. He's not, he's not um, you know, a door-to-door salesman trying to chagrin you into buying something you don't need. He's going to teach the truth and he's going he's to let God's spirit do its work. You're not going to hear his voice in the street. He's not going to argue or shout. He's going to proclaim justice to the nations. He's going to do it modestly. So he came to proclaim, but he came also, secondly, to provide care with gentleness. To provide care with gentleness. I love the way that it talks about this. It says, he will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. We've just come out of a holiday season at Christmas where light is featured prominently. It's on our trees. It's on our houses. Um, it's candles. And it says that, that Jesus is so concerned about ministering compassionately that that smoldering wick that is not a flame but it's not fully extinguished, there's just a spark that's barely hanging on there. He, he cups his hands around it 
so that that smoldering wick can become a burning flame. He stops. He cares for it. He proclaims modestly. He cares with gentleness. And lastly, we see that the nations, the Father commands him, the Spirit commissions him, the Son recognizes his compassionate role, but the nations recognize him and they come to him. Verse 18, it says that he is to proclaim justice to the nations. Well, in verse 21, they hear his voice and they come. It says the nations will put their hope in his name. Jesus wasn't just interested in the Jews. That's part of the controversy. He was interested in Gentiles too. It was his original plan from the beginning when he called Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'll make you a blessing to all nations. In his own ministry, he um, commends the faith of a Gentile centurion and says that he hasn't seen the faith uh, among Israel that he sees among a Samaritan half-bred woman. The point in all of this, as it was for the Pharisees, for us is that we need to know Jesus. We need to know him. Not just the familiarity, contemptuous way that Sunday school answer way that we do. We need to know him. And everything we've talked about to this point enforces that. If we don't know the Savior, it's because we've misunderstood the Scripture and we've misused the Sabbath. All of these things God has given to us, the Scriptures and the Sabbath, to be boundary markers, to be uh, um, guardrails, to push us to the point where we see Christ. Not that we read the Scripture and go, yeah, I can do that. Not that we get together with God's people and get fired up and go, yeah, I can do that. But to know that there's, nothing, there's no work that we need to do it is the work that has been done for us in Christ that accomplishes that rest that we need. I mean, beyond all this, talk about the Sabbath. Can we just admit that Jesus is our Sabbath? He has done the work so that we can rest in what he has accomplished because there's nothing that we can accomplish that amounts to a hill of beans for Jesus. He has done it all. And beyond all these talks about laws and regulations, about what should or should not happen on Sunday, can we rest and put our full weight in the work that Christ has done for us. That's the point. See, listen. He's accused the Pharisees of not knowing the scripture and misusing their corporate worship gatherings. If the question was asked to you, do you know the scriptures better than the Pharisees did? I mean, they were in Sabbath school every Sunday or every Saturday. Didn't call it Sunday school. He said they were in Sunday school all the time. They didn't get it. Here's my question for you. Going into a new year, what is your plan for spending time in God's Word? Because everybody here has a plan to be in God's Word. Did you know that? <clears throat> Every single one of you, front row, you all have a plan to be in God's Word. It might not be a plan, but that's a plan. If you don't have a plan to be in God's Word, then you have planned not to be in God's Word. So what's your plan? How are you going to feed yourself throughout the week? I, I can't do it because I, 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 didn't, I didn't have it ready. I was putting some stuff together. But on Tuesday... On our website, there's going to be about 25 different Bible reading plans that through some websites you can hyperlink to. So if you want to read through the Old Testament five times in a year, we've got a reading plan for that. You want to read through the New Testament seven times in a year, we'll have a reading plan for that. You want to do five days a week instead of seven days a week, we've got a reading plan for that. You want to read through the Bible chronologically, we've got a reading plan for that. What's the point? Have a plan. Be intentional about spending time in God's Word because it, 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 it is good for you and can, God can use that discipline to point you to the Savior. Second thing, man, do you, do you get the day of worship right? Are you here for the praise of men, or are you here for the glory of God? 
Listen, I, I'm glad to have people in church for whatever reason. If you're here so that Granny sees you, great. Now, your motivation may not be right, and God will judge you for that. Church is a very dangerous place to be if you're not going to take it seriously because you're accountable for what you hear. Do you, get, do you get the day of worship right? It may not be the Sabbath for us, but do you get it right? Or are you merely here out of tradition? Jesus would say, you know what? You can perish as well as your traditions can if your motivation is not right. And God's word and God's people can work together in such a beautiful way to point us to the Savior. I could share testimony of how God's people have encouraged me to trust Christ more. Can you? Has God enriched your life through the life of his people? Has God enriched your life through the vitality that you get through his word? And I love it here because there's a secret message here. That's not really secret, but we see it. The Pharisees had used all of their laws to make compassion almost impossible. You know, you needed to comply with 613 rules and regulations before you could do something nice for anyone. And Jesus just says, you know what? Don't wait for the sun to go down and for it not to be the Sabbath anymore to do right to somebody. As you go into 2015, do you have a plan to search for the Savior in the Scriptures? Do you have a plan to worship the Savior with His people? And do you have a plan to emulate the Savior by your mercy? That's the kind of church we want to be, isn't it? Searching the scriptures, worshiping together, showing acts of mercy. Let's pray for God to do that for us in 2015. God, we thank you for this word. <clears throat> and while we, we, oh Lord, we may not want to start off 2015 talking about conflict. Lord, we know, well, we may deny it, but we know it is around the corner for all of us this year. We don't know what shape or size it's going to be, but it's going to come. Uh, we're going to have conflict. The sun may not set today before conflict. It may not be. It may be a, a, a little one that doesn't want to eat peanut butter and jelly for lunch, but conflict is coming. God, we thank you for how you demonstrate the way to act in conflict. You were bold, but oh, you were completely based upon a true interpretation of the scripture. God, there's sometimes when I'm upset and I'm in the midst of conflict, there's not a lot of scripture that comes out of my mouth. God, I pray in 2015 that that's different. That's an area where you've convicted me. Uh, man, how hard is it to fight with somebody who's quoting scripture all the time? So God, give us, give me a peaceful spirit. Help, help the scriptures to regulate our relationships. Help us to appreciate your church in a new way. Help us to understand that all these things are pointing in the same direction to lift high the name of Christ. And God, now as we enter into an opportunity where we get to highlight Christ's continuing ministry to us through his death and sacrifice. We have the opportunity to take this meal. God, we pray that we take it in faith and that you use our remembrance to strengthen us for living for you more. In Jesus' name we pray.